Well, good morning. It has been a wonderful time of worship this morning. I love it when the songs bring forth such um, good doctrine, good theology. Moves us ready for the message. Last night, as I was, um, I've been preparing for a couple weeks, but last night, the Lord rearranged my plans as what my opening would be about, as he often has a tendency to do when we think we know what should be there, and he comes along and says, no, I want you to do something else. So, 10 years ago this September, at the second preview service for Hope Church, we hadn't officially started yet, just the second preview service, we were over at the pack. How many of you were there? Okay, we have a few. I was asked to uh, share my hope story. And that's what the Lord asked me to share with you this morning, verbatim. So no editing here. This is what I shared back then. Good morning. My name is George Pan. I want to share with you this morning my story of hope. I was raised in a home where my mother and her family were strong believers. Although my dad joined the church, he was never spiritually inclined. We attended church every Sunday and would pray before dinner every night. In my teen years, being inquisitive, my brother and I would sneak shots of whiskey from our dad's liquor supply and peeked at his Playboy magazines. Along with a cousin, we later snuck into a strip show at a traveling carnival when we visited our grandparents. The deed was discovered by our families. We were confronted and ashamed. However, later alone with our dad, instead of being punished, we were told by him how proud he was we were growing up and becoming men. I was receiving two distinct messages, one from my dad in the world, one from my mother in the church. The summer before my senior year in high school, I was alone watching Billy Graham on TV. I was convicted by the message and realized I was living for myself and was unprepared to meet Christ should he return. I prayed to receive Christ, and I felt a wonderful peace come upon me. I had a hunger to know his word, spend time with him in prayer, and share him with others. But certain hidden sins still plagued me, and I did not know what to do. I looked for a mentor, but found none. Soon I was in college and found I was totally unprepared for what I would experience there. As time passed, I began to compromise, and by my senior year, I had begun to drink alcohol just to fit in. Upon graduation, I was employed as a teacher and coach at my alma mater and began to compromise even more in order to be accepted. My colleagues drank to excess and were committing adultery and fornication. It did not take long for their lifestyle to become my own. Yet I was convicted by my sin and would pray for forgiveness only to fall back into the same sins shortly thereafter. This pattern of sin, conviction, repentance, deliverance, a time of peace, then a falling away continued throughout my 20s. Career disappointments, personal betrayals, deepening sin, thoughts of suicide after a failed relationship are just some of what marked this period of self-deception and moral and spiritual decline. 
I was losing hope with each passing year. I stopped attending church at the age of 30, and on my 32nd birthday, I was arrested for a DUI, which was long overdue. That was on a Saturday night. Sunday morning, when I woke from my drunken stupor, I realized it was not a dream. It was at this moment of crisis in my life that the Lord spoke to me, telling me I had to choose. Either live for the world or live for him, but I had to choose. That Sunday morning, I chose a life of hope when I surrendered my life to Christ. On Monday, when I returned to work, it was as if scales had fallen from my eyes. I saw everything in a whole new light. The deception was gone. I saw the truth about myself and others. I began listening to WCRF every night to the preaching, teaching, and worship. My mind and my heart were being transformed, and that was observable to others through the transformation of my life as well. I once again hungered to know God's word, to spend time with him in prayer, and to worship. I began attending a church that clearly taught God's word. I was discipled and grounded in the faith. I began serving in church in a variety of ways. After several years, a colleague at work confided that he had ruined his life with alcohol, ended his marriage, and divorced through adultery. He said, I've been watching you, George. You've changed. I need what you have in my life. I led him to the Savior and discipled him to ground him in the faith. The hope that he now has, he credits to me, but all I did was point him to Jesus. Later, the Lord led me to Grace Church in Middleburg Heights where I met and married my wife, Mary Beth. We've been blessed by God with 17 wonderful years of marriage. Be 27 this June. Growing and serving the Lord together. I want to leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul who wrote in Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Since I surrendered my life to Christ, this verse has come true in my life. By the power of the Holy Spirit, my life has been filled with joy and peace from God. My life abounds in hope because of Christ. Each morning I pray that others would see Christ in me, the hope of glory. This hope is available to you as well. Thank you. You know, there's a part of your life you just like to clip out, you know, and just erase that, leave that on the cutting room floor, and just, oh, look how wonderful things are. But the Lord led me to share that because there are those who may be in one of those stages I was in. And so he wants you to know that you too can have hope. That church I went to uh, after I came back to the Lord, uh, the pastor preached a sermon on Romans 12. And I, I, I was amazed by that message. And so I got one of those. Now, some of you may not know what it is, but it was called a cassette tape. Okay, there was this little cassette tape, and you put in this little thingamabob player, it popped up, put it down, and you pressed it. I listened to that message on Romans 12 every single night until I wore out the tape. So Romans 12 has always played a powerful place in my life 
and especially uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Before we take a look at this, we want to take a look at the background to Romans. Some of you may not be aware of what it's about. The Apostle Paul was writing a letter to the church in Rome. He hadn't been there yet. And so he wanted to make sure that they had been rooted and grounded in the faith. He wanted to make sure they knew exactly what they should be believing. And so the letter to the Romans is the most theological, the most doctrinally oriented of all of his writings the most detailed, because he didn't know if they had heard it correctly. So I just want to share a little bit from that. Whoops, wrong one. Uh, back when I heard Billy Graham, one of the things he mentioned to get, which I did, it was called the Reach Out New Testament, the Living New Testament. It's got pictures of what we looked like back then, if you want to come up later and see the clothing styles and the hair and the glasses and all that. But I read through this cover to cover because I could understand it. One of the first verses that stuck out to me was in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It's God's powerful method of bringing all who believe it, all who believe it to heaven. Okay, so when you got good news, you know that means there has to be bad news. So a good bit of what he's going to write about in chapters 1 through 11 is the bad news because if you don't realize how bad the bad news is, you don't realize how good the good news is. So reading a little bit from that version from back when I was in high school, and these verses are underlined from back then. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, evil men who push away the truth from them. For the truth about God is known to them instinctively. God has put this knowledge in their hearts. Since earliest times, men have seen the earth and the sky and all that God made and have known his existence and great eternal power. So they will have no excuse when they stand before God at judgment day. Yes, they knew about him all right, but they wouldn't admit it or worship him or even think of him for all his daily care. And after a while, they began to think up silly ideas of what God was like and what he wanted them to do. The result was that their foolish minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise without God, they became utter fools instead. And then instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they took wood and stone and made idols for themselves, carving them to look like mere birds and animals and snakes and puny men. So God let them go ahead into every sort of sex sin and do whatever they wanted to. Yes, vile and sinful things with each other's bodies. So it was that when God gave them up and they would not even acknowledge him, God gave them up to do everything their evil minds could think of. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness and sin of greed and hate, envy, murder, fighting, lying, bitterness, and gossip. They were backbiters, haters of God, insolent, proud, braggarts, always thinking of new ways of sinning, continually being disobedient to their parents. That one was convicting. And they tried to misunderstand, broke their promises, were heartless without pity. They were fully aware of God's death penalty for these crimes, yet they went right ahead and did them anyway and encouraged others to do so. Two. Chapter 2, he goes on to say, The day will surely come when, at God's command, Jesus Christ will judge the secret lives of everyone 
the inmost thoughts and motives. Now, some may be saying, wow, those are some really mean, evil, wicked people. Oh, that doesn't include me. Well, Paul talked to you as well in chapter 3. Verse 10, as Scripture says, no one is good. No one in all the world is innocent. No one has ever really followed God's paths or even truly wanted to. Everyone has turned away. All has gone wrong. No one anywhere has kept on doing what is right, not one. So there you have it, the bad news. In verse 23, yes, all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious ideal. Then he gives us the good news. Yet now, God declares us not guilty of offending him if we trust in Jesus Christ, who in his kindness freely takes away our sins. For God sent Christ Jesus to make the punishment for our sins, to take the punishment for our sins and to end all God's anger against us. He used Christ's blood and our faith as the means of saving us from his wrath. So that's the background then as to what Romans 1 through 11 is about. He spells out certain other circumstances, certain other groups of people, but basically it comes back the same way. Apart from Christ, we have no hope. But in Christ, we have assurance of salvation. So, that then leads us to taking a look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's take a look at this uh, one phrase at a time. First of all, we're looking here. In verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. When we see the word therefore, this is juxtapositioning everything he said so far. Now, therefore, because of all of this, the good news and the bad, okay? Brothers, he's talking to believers. He's talking to Christians in the Roman church. The word appeal, I appeal to you. Understand something here. Paul is an apostle. He could command them. He's got that authority, but he doesn't. Why doesn't he? Why does he use the word appeal, or some translations will say urge, or some beseech, and not command? Because it's very, very important, your motivation. See, if you're just going through the motions, like the older son of the prodigal son, the older brother, right? Begrudgingly did things. He was doing them. His heart wasn't right. He didn't have the right attitude. So as we look at this, he's appealing to them out of love. Paul's appealing to them out of love and not commanding them. Now on what basis is he appealing? By the mercies of God. As we think about mercy... A lot of times we talk about God's grace, and rightly so. But if we don't understand the concept of mercy, we have no idea about God's grace. 
Mercy is when we do not receive what we deserve. Mercy is when we do not receive what we deserve. Grace is when we're given something positive that we don't deserve. So mercy, we're not getting what we do deserve. Grace, we're getting something we don't deserve. If somebody walked in here all of a sudden and said, hey, here's a billion dollars. Oh, thanks, dude. Appreciate that, you know. Did I deserve that? No, but okay, fine. Don't know why he did it. But on the other hand, flip it around to the mercy. If that same person was the one who you did something horrible or atrocious to or to their child, and they extend mercy as well as grace, do you recognize how powerful love that is? Never forget God's mercy. And that's what Paul is urging them to in light of God's mercy. Paul goes into a little more detail on this in Ephesians 2, 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead on our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ. God's grace is immeasurable. We can't even comprehend it. We can't fathom it. And why is that? Because it extends and comes from his mercy. All right, so in view of God's mercy, what is Paul asking us to do? We see he's calling us to present our bodies to God. Now, by bodies, he's talking about everything about us. He's talking about our thoughts, our emotions, our wills, our desires. Everything of who we are is to be given to God, including our bodies, the things we do with our bodies. So it's an all-out commitment that we're giving to God. Paul earlier talked about presenting ourselves to God in Romans chapter 6. Here you'll see that he first starts with a negative and then a positive. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So once more, we are to no longer present ourselves to sin, Instead, we're to present ourselves to God in righteousness. So in what, so in what uh, way are we to present ourselves to God? Let's see that on the next slide. Present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. So as we look at this, we see the concept of, of presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, if you sinned, you had to take an animal, many times a sheep or a goat, you'd place your hand on the animal's head, you would take out the knife, you would cut the animal's throat, your hand is on his head saying, my sin did this to you. And then you'd offer that animal as a sacrifice. So once more, in the Old Testament, we see Scripture says, without the shedding of blood, there is no removal or remission of sin. Now, 
since Christ died in our place on the cross, the entire Old Testament sacrificial, sacrificial system has been completed. So we don't need to die that way, so we present ourselves alive to God. Second aspect there, it says a sacrifice. What is a sacrifice? A sacrifice is merely an offering that costs us something. An offering that costs us something. Uh, David, when he was seeking to stop the plague that he brought about by taking the census, went up to where the temple would eventually be built, and he asked if he could purchase the ground. He needed to make a sacrifice to God. And the person who had some animals there said, here, just take them and use them. And he said, no. Shall I offer to God that, that which cost me nothing? Here, offer this to God. Okay, didn't cost me anything. That's not an offering. An offering, there is a sacrifice. There is a personal cost. And so David paid him the full value of his land so he could feel the pain, the cost of that sacrifice in order to stop the plague. So as we look at this, we understand there's a cost. Let's go back to the, the little lamb. You know, the cute little lamb that's going to die because you committed one sin. Today, that lamb, about 34 to 36 pounds, would cost between five to six hundred dollars per sin each time we're under the old system. We'd have some debtors, we'd be in debtor's prison, I mean, bankrupt, right? Fortunately, we have first John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is that? Because the blood of Jesus Christ. His son continually cleanses us from all sin. We don't have to go there anymore. But understand the concept here. It is a living sacrifice. It's going to cost us something. Holy means to be set apart. Acceptable. That goes back to our motives. That's why Paul is appealing. You need to do this because you desire to do this. It's got to be something you really want to do. Just going through the motions won't cut it. God's, we look on the outward appearance. God looks on our hearts. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're feeling. And so once more, it has to be a genuine desire. The word spiritual actually uh, is good there. The ESV and the New American Standard use uh, spiritual. The other translations basically say logical or reasonable. From the Greek word, that's where we do get our word logic from. And then worship, that's a technical term for anything we do for God. Anything that was done in the temple. So worship is not just singing. Worship is every act of our lives that's done for God's glory. That's worship. So as we take a look at this then, we can see once more that we're called to be living sacrifices that's going to cost us, that are set apart to God, acceptable to God because our motives are right, and this is our reasonable, logical service to him because of his mercy in our lives. Now, how costly is that offering going to be? Well, Jesus tells us that in Luke 9, 23 and 24. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So the first thing we see there is we have to deny ourself, the self, that which is 
self-centered, self-focused. Anything that deals with the self, we have to deny. I mean, our world today is so focused on the self, we take pictures of ourselves and they're called selfies. Pretty self-focused culture today. And yet, Jesus says you must deny self. Take up your cross. To take up your cross means to die to that self, that old way of living. To die to that which is based on the old nature, the fallen nature. And embrace his will for your life. Die to self, embracing God's will for your life. And in that way, we need to do it, notice, daily. And in that way, we can truly follow Jesus, without which we can't follow Jesus. So, what does Paul mean when he says we are to present ourselves? What's he talking about here? Well, when we look up the word present, we see the word present means to surrender or relinquish possession or control to another. To submit to the power, authority, and control of another. Therefore, surrender is the pathway to maturity and effective Christ-like ministry. When we surrender our lives to Christ. Now notice, this is a commitment. This is an all-out commitment. I'm in. I'm in. It's an act of the will, a decision that you have to make. Notice, there's both an initial decision and an ongoing decision. Jesus said, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily. This is something we have to do every day. This is something I pray every day, that I would deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus. I pray that every day, because I want to be like Christ. We also see that it involves our body, our thoughts, our feelings, everything about us. And it's living, holy, acceptable, it's reasonable, it's our service to God, which is called worship. The worship of you, of each of us during the week, how we live our lives in order to bring glory to God culminates when we come together to worship as a congregation that has been glorifying God all week long as we sing his praises. As we sing his praises, we should also live out his praises by the way we live throughout the week. So, now that we have offered ourselves to God, what does Paul tell us we now need to do? And that is, do not be conformed to this world. I like the way J.B. Phillips paraphrases this. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world squeeze you into this, its mold. Our old fallen nature, our mind is corrupted because of sin. We have deep patterns in our mind and our thought process from our time apart from Christ, from what the world's trying to transmit to us. We can't allow it to squeeze us into its way of thinking, squeeze us into the way of doing things. We can't be conformed to the world. Now, Paul's not the only one who spoke about this. Peter also spoke about not being conformed. In 1 Peter 1, 13 to 16, we see 
Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So notice here we see Peter saying, do not be conformed, if you will, any longer to those passions you had in your former life, in your ignorance, being apart from God. Don't go there. Paul speaks about this more fully in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Unless you think it's just Peter and Paul that are saying this, well, guess what? The Apostle John also has a warning for us, and he warns us in 1 John 2, 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. All right? So we now see what we're no longer to do. What is it Paul wants us to do? So we continue in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. In verse 2 we see, But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, by changing the way we think, we will change the way we live. Now, when we look here at this word transformed, the Greek word for trans transformed is where we get our English term metamorphosis. And you remember from your basic science, metamorphosis is like when the little caterpillar turns into a butterfly. It's a radical transformation. That's how radical the transformation should be in our lives when we surrender our life over to Christ. When we're no longer allowing ourselves to be squeezed into the mold of this world's way of thinking things and doing things, but rather we're allowing ourselves to be radically transformed into the image of Christ. Now we notice the word renewal or other translations say renewing. It is ongoing. It's not a once and done deal. It's an ongoing deal. We are being renewed daily. If we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, we're, we're being renewed daily. The problem is we have some well-worn ruts in our old life that are still there. Sometimes when I get in the car, my wife and I are going somewhere. If we happen to go up Prospect into Strongsville, a lot of times I'm just going to naturally turn onto Lund Road because that's where I taught school for 30-some years. And if I'm not thinking, it's just automatic. She's going, where are we going? You know, oh, sorry, I got to turn the car around and go a different way. Those ruts, those patterns, those habits are deeply entrenched in us. That's why we have to continually look to the Lord to bring about change and transformation. It's an ongoing process. Paul clarifies this further when he writes 
in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image, that means into Christ's image, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Notice, from one degree of glory to another, we're being transformed one degree at a time, one step at a time, one aspect at a time. And if we assist the Holy Spirit by not resisting him, if we assist him, that process may be a little more rapid than if we're resisting him. Likewise, in his letter to Titus, he focuses on the Holy Spirit's role in, cha in chapter 3, verse 5. He saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of re regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So once more, the renewal of our lives, the transformation of our lives is the job of the Holy Spirit. And what is it that the Holy Spirit works to do in our lives? We see that a little earlier in Titus. Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our, and of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So once more, as we are being transformed, we are able to discern and put into practice the will of God. And that's what the Holy Spirit trains us to do. So, once more, we're either going to be assisting the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, or we're going to resist the Holy Spirit, grieve the Holy Spirit. Scripture even says we can quench the Holy Spirit. So what is it we need to do in order to be assisting the Holy Spirit and not grieving Him? We have eight critical aspects of transformation. One of them is Bible engagement. You heard from my testimony that both times, the first time when I accepted Christ as my Savior, the second time when I accepted Christ as my sanctifier, the one who's going to transform my life. When I surrendered my whole life to the Lord, there was an instant hunger for his word. The Bible is God's truth. The, Spirit is the, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth who will guide you into all truth using God's word, which is truth, to point you to Jesus and to point you to the Father. And so once more, the more you engage in the Word of God, the more the Holy Spirit can be teaching you and training you. One way I found effective, after I came back to the Lord, I heard about something called the one-year Bible. Maybe some of you have these. The one-year Bible takes the Bible, divides it up into 365 daily readings. So all you got to do is open up to today, and there it is, and you just read what it has for you. You don't have to think about what, what should I read today. In about 15 minutes a day, you can read through the entire Bible in one year. That's what it's designed to do. 15, maybe 20 minutes a day. Likewise, in only five minutes a day, if you read one chapter of the New Testament, you get through the entire New, New Testament in one year. How much are you engaging the Bible? How much do you want the Holy Spirit to be able to transform your life? Second, obeying God and denying self. That's a demonstration of transformation. The opposite is, okay, denying God and obeying self. Okay? So, once more, are we obeying God? 
Serving God and others is a sign of transformation. Jesus came not to be served, even though he's God, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So once more, we see that transformation of our thought process when we're looking for opportunities to serve others. Sharing Christ. Once more, we see the transformation in our lives when we're willingly and openly able to share Christ with others. As I shared with you, somebody took notice that my life had changed. Scripture says, you know, be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Be ready to share with others why the change going on inside of you is taking place, why you are different from others. The exercising of faith. Faith is taking, if you will, a risk, trusting God at his word. Am I willing to step out in faith and trust God in what he has said? That's demonstrating that transformation is going on in your life. Seeking God. Seeking God in prayer. Seeking God in his word. Seeking God each moment of the day. Once more, every situation in your life is allowed into your life by God to draw you closer to himself. The Apostle Paul, writing in Corinthians, stated that all of these things had happened. He listed all the things that had happened to him. That we might learn not to rely on ourselves, but God. So the things that are occurring in your life are designed to help you seek God. Number seven, building relationships. As you heard from my testimony, I looked for a mentor. I looked for someone who could help me walk the Christian life. I looked for somebody I could share with the struggles I was having with sin. And I didn't find anyone. We must intentionally build relationships with other believers. You cannot live the Christian life alone and be successful. If you're a mature believer, you must be seeking out other Christians who might need somebody to walk alongside them. If you're, young, if you're a young believer, seek out somebody, your Barnabas, somebody like you that you're struggling with, a Paul, somebody that you can look up to. It might be your youth leaders. It might be an older adult. We must intentionally build relationships to build one another up, to love one another genuinely, to come alongside one another. You saw what happened to me when I didn't have that. One of my favorite movies is the movie Gladiator. Sorry. Two scenes in the movie Gladiator that sticks out to me about the Christian life. First one's one of the opening scenes. The Roman legion is lining up for battle. All of a sudden, the Germans are over there. The next thing you know, here comes hundreds, thousands of arrows through the air. Romans then spas. They do what they do. Shield down. Whole row of shields. Next man came up. Put his shield in place there. Boom, boom, boom. Next guy came up right like this. It's like a tortoise shell. None of those arrows got through. Together, they couldn't be defeated. Then a little later in the movie, all that's been taken away. He's now a gladiator. He's in the arena. And they got the odds stacked against them. 
And the hero of the story says, if we fight separately, we will all die. We have to stick together. And in the film, they kind of formed a circle. And they had chariots going around them and things like that. And the guy who's out there trying to fight on his own, he dies. This one dies. That one dies. But those guys who stuck together were able to win. We need one another to build up our relationships and be victorious in Christ. And the last point here, being unashamed. That goes back to what Paul said. I am unashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. Here's the key. Are we living our life unashamed of the fact that we are Christian? Do the people at work know we're a Christian? Do our neighbors? Do we talk about our faith? Do we say things like, I'll pray for you? Or are we ashamed? At school, they knew I was a Christian. Strongsville High School. Many times they'd hear a bunch of teachers laughing and stuff like that. I'd go over to hear what's going on. They'd go, no, 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 George, you, you don't want to hear this. You, you don't want to hear what we're saying. They were keeping me away from things that wouldn't be good for me to hear. And just a few weeks ago, subbing down at the middle school, and one of the girls got in a fight with some other girls and stuff like that in seventh grade, and they asked me if I would walk her down the hallway from that class to another class so nothing else would occur and all that stuff. So I walk her down, and then she says, could I go see the principal? The teacher said, yeah. So I walked her to the principal. The principal's talking to her and things like that. Then out of the blue, the principal said, you know, Mr. Panna here is a pastor. You can trust him. You can bring anything to him because he cares about you. I'm like, what? I'm a substitute teacher in here, you know what? But see, she knew because she had been at the high school. There's a lot of Christians in Strongsville Middle School that are living out their faith, and everybody knows they're a Christian. The question is, where are you? So wrapping up then, in conclusion, Paul is urging each Christian to offer himself to God as a thank offering. This is based upon his mercy. We didn't get what we deserved on top of all of his grace, but we didn't get what we deserved. And therefore, he is pouring out his grace on our lives today. Two applications here. Number one, there may be somebody here who has never put their faith in Christ. Maybe this is the first time you've come to church. Or like me, maybe you've been going to the church from the time you were little. It's not until you're 16 years old, even though you've heard it in church every week. Not until you're 16 years old and happen to be home alone watching TV and I'm watching Billy Graham. Wasn't that a divine appointment? And that's when I trusted Christ. If you've never trusted Christ, you can do so today. You can do so right now. Now, for those of you who have trusted Christ, have you surrendered your life to him? In the Christian Mission Alliance, we talk about Christ as our Savior, our Sanctifier, our Healer, and our Coming King. If you accepted him as your Savior, that's one crisis decision. 
Have you accepted him as your sanctifier, the one who has the power to transform your life to make it just like his? Or are you trying, like I did in my 20s, to live the Christian life in my own strength and falling time and time again? You can surrender your life to Christ in that way and allow him to take control of that transformation process. Now, for some of you, you may have done that a while ago, but once more, this is a daily commitment. You may need to renew that commitment, renew that dedication. So as the worship team is coming up, let's pause and pray and seek the Lord. Father, we come before your throne of grace, recognizing the depth of your mercy in our lives. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has yet to place their faith in you, I pray that even now that they might willingly acknowledge that they are a sinner in need of a Savior, and that the only Savior is Jesus Christ. And they would reach out to Christ and accept him as their Lord and Savior. Your mercy will be extended upon them and that you will not hold them accountable for their sin because you've placed it on Christ. And your grace will be poured out on them abundantly because they will become your children. They will be given forgiveness, eternal life, and the Holy Spirit to live and dwell within them. And Father, for those who have been living the Christian life but struggling in it, I pray, Father, that they would surrender their life to you wholly, to be allowed by you to move them into new ways and new depths of knowing you and experiencing you, transforming their lives so radically, Lord, it would be like a metamorphosis. Father, work in a mighty way in our midst this morning. We thank you now and ask this in Christ's name. Amen.